Hey there, sloggy kiddos. We are reading The Sinking City by Christine Cohen. We completed uh, chapter six yesterday, and uh, lots happened in the first six chapters. Our heroine, Leona, has found out that her father has made a horrible promise compact contract with a race of nasty sea creatures where her life and her body are surrendered to the sea creatures in exchange for a previous rescue of her older brother uh, back when before she was born and when her brother fell into the water while her family was out on a boat so that is the main theme of this. Her life is surrendered to hostile forces as a trade for her older brothers. And now she has to find a way to try and get out of that contract. Currently, her family and her are in violation of that contract because what did she do? She did some crazy, unorthodox, really gruesome things to fake her own death and now she is in disguise as a boy she cut her beautiful auburn hair uh, and is now looking for a place to stay and somebody to work for and uh, at the end of chapter six she's inside mago ray's house after a lot of trouble Speaking to Aloysius, and uh, Aloysius is going to take her to Mago Ray's house or Mago Ray, so she can talk to him about possibly becoming her apprentice or getting some sort of help. So here's the end of chapter six. Aloysius considers his shoes, and I drink half the cup in rapid, scalding gulps while I wait. Well then, he says at last, I'll take you to him. I stand quickly, and he holds up a hand. Don't make him angry. If he tells you to go, you must go. Of course, I say, although I have no intention of leaving without a fight. Mago Ray can do his worst to me. It's still better than eking out an existence on the streets. I think. I'm not entirely sure what a magician's worst is. Okay, chapter 7. We follow a long hallway, lit with hanging lanterns, and I glance into every open room we pass. One is full of marble statues, another has an elaborate writing desk, a third is completely covered in vines and plants. The air smells damp and thick with soil, so unlike the merchant rooms of our main floor. And there is an overabundance of greenery in strange places, ivy growing up the side of one wall, an enormous fuchsia spilling out of a hanging planter in the hallway. Some of the plants look happy and well-tended. Others, like the maidenhair ferns stretching out of one room and down the hall, are in desperate need of attention. 
Attention I could give them if Ray lets me stay. Is it possible that the inside of Ray's home is larger than it appears from the outside? I cannot imagine how all these marble staircases and landings, the spiral banisters and domed apses could fit within the modern, the modest green structure I remember. There are no sparkling chandeliers or gilded molding here, however. The whole house is like a forgotten palace, overgrown with vines and flowers and moss. Afternoon sunlight streams through the vaulted windows and warms the air like a greenhouse. I trail my fingers across the tangled morning glory that winds up the banister. Something is off about the shape of the stems, though. Strained and unnatural. I squint at them. They're held in place by a spell, and the poor plant is fighting against its magical barrier. We climb two smaller, moss-covered staircases and walk down a narrow hallway. At the end is a pair of arched wooden doors, and above them are two stone eyes and a bulbous nose carved in a perpetual, perpetual glare. With the door serving as the mouth, it looks like an ogre frozen in mid-roar. Whatever is behind those doors must be important to deserve, to deserve such an entrance. I check for spell traps, but Aloysius pushes the door open with his shoulder even as he knocks. He beckons for me to follow him inside. It's a magnificent round library lined with leather-bound books that cover every inch of wall. The ceiling slopes into a dome. The light streams in through the oculus window at the very top. A ladder on rails encircles the room, and a stately clawfoot desk commands the center. Compared to the rest of the house, this there is very little vegetation. A trellis stands in one corner of the room with a pot of climbing roses underneath it. And beside the pot, holding the burning remains of a spell as it crumbles to ash is the infamous Mago Ray. The spell he just cast is a grayish-brown, a fortification spell meant to keep things in place. And the thing that he's bullying into position is this poor rose plant. I wanted a wall of flowers, he says, he has a low, quick voice, and if he can't be bothered to project for this, as if he can't be bothered to project for the sake of others. Mago Ray, Aloysius says, there is a well of patience in his tone. The magician glances up, takes us both in, then crouches down in front of the pot, flicking his robes out behind him. His eyes are the deep obsidian that I remember, though he's currently directing his glare at the trellis. Not him, he says, and attempts to thread one of the canes through the trellis. The cane snaps, and I wince. Him. I'm caught off guard by being referred to as a boy, then pleased my disguise is working. Oh? 
Without turning, Mago Ray waves a hand in my direction. No, he's much too scrawny. Return him. Return him. Aloysius gives his master's back a perplexed look. No need to ask for my money back. Just take him away. I didn't buy him. Mago Ray makes a grab at the plant like he's catching a rabbit. He hisses and drops it quickly, sucking on his forefinger. In one nimble motion, he jumps up and whirls around, placing a hand on Aloysius's shoulder. I appreciate your frugality, but he won't do. The Vipera prefer meatier dinners. Dinners? I edge my way toward the door. I think I can remember my way out. And unless the magician uses a spell, I wager I can run faster than both of them. Aloysius sighs. Stop retreating, Leo. Mago Ray is attempting a joke. I bought a pig for the Vipera's dinner. He points at me and I freeze. I found him standing by the back door. Mago Ray's thick eyebrows raise and he finally looks straight at me. I stare back, drawing on my family's ability to make a formidable first impression through good posture. Standing. Really. He gives the rosebush a tentative push toward the trellis, and one of the spell cords breaks. Well, for that you can give him a lira. I don't want your money. Beside me, Aloysius closes his eyes and exhales through his nose. The magician goes still, his fingers flexed like claws over the tortured plant. What was that child? I recognize the polite anger in his voice. Now I've heard it countless times from Master and Selmy. I choose to ignore it. I said I don't want your money. That's not why I've come. Mago Ray is hunched over the rosebush, but now he unfolds slowly and turns his back to me. He's wearing a placid smile, the kind a cat might give a mouse before it pounces. And what, may I ask? If I may ask, of course, have you come for? There really doesn't seem to be a diplomatic way to go about this, so I decide to be straightforward. I straighten my shoulders and clasp my hands behind my back. I've come to be your magician's assistant. Mago Ray stares at me without blinking. His eyes are a volcanic glass, slowly simmering toward an explosion. I focus on the bridge of his, no of his long nose instead. I don't need an assistant, he says at last. You can't see magic. I don't want an assistant. But it wouldn't cost you anything. I can work for my food and you wouldn't have to pay me. All I need is a place to sleep. Aloysius comes to stand beside the magician. His eyes study the ground between them. 
Aloe, Margot Ray says. I told you never again. I'm sorry. Aloysius puts a hand on my shoulder. Let's go, he says. Instead, I step closer to Ray. He is tall and wiry with black hair that falls across his face as he glares down at me. Not a cat. A vulture. You do need my help, I say. Perhaps not with spells, but with the sorry state of your house. Leo, Aloysius says my name in a sharp exhale. You have a fern downstairs that someone planted too close to a fireplace. They hate heat. It's withering up as we speak. And you put binding spells on the morning glory instead of taking the time to properly train it up the banister. And this rose here. I step past the magician, ignoring the fact that he's gone rigid. Red splotches blossoming on his sallow cheeks. The key is in how you train the cane. Straight up like you've been doing, and it's, it'll only flower at the top. Place the canes horizontally. I demonstrate with a deft motion, and you can have a wall of flowers. I pause for breath. Aloysius's eyes are wide as they move between us in rapid succession. Mago Ray's silence is worse than any outburst. Anger is building to a boil under his skin, and it almost looks as if the dark pigment in his irises is starting to bleed into the white. I wonder if he carries a spell for incinerating arrogant visitors in his robes. I hold my ground. Father says that the best way to force someone to back down is silence. Not apologizing. Just waiting. And so, I wait. Another strand from the binding spell breaks and the rose bush crumples forward in defeat. Mago Ray twitches. What did you bring me, Aloysius? He says at last. It's as if the entire room catches its breath. Another chance. Aloysius says. He'll have to pass the test. I'll oversee his training. When he fails, he goes back to the canals. He won't fail. Ray grunts and turns his back on us. Fine. He can sleep in the cellar. Aloysius ignores Ray's suggestions and leads me to an actual room. I glance around long enough to discover where the bed is before collapsing onto it. I don't bother to remove my shoes. I might have slept an entire night and day through the church bells ringing and the clamor of merchants in the square, but gnawing hunger wakes me sometime in the early morning. I rub the sleep from my eyes and take in my new arrangements. The room itself is exquisite. A four-poster bed, walls wrapped in tapestries depicting hunting dogs and unicorns and knights, an ornate dressing table and chair, and my own balcony that looks out over St. Stephen's Square. However, 
I see now why Aloysius apologized when he brought me here last night. The room is a storage space for failed experiments and strange artifacts. The golden head of a cat statue stares up at me, nestled in a bundle of moth-eaten silks that I vaguely remember tripping over on my way to bed. A cluster of dead, potted plants rests on the window. One has fallen over, leaving a pile of dried dirt that some small animal has trailed across the fraying rug. There's an assortment of bones in the corner, but I haven't worked up the courage to look squarely at them. When I stand up, a layer of dirt and dust from the bed travels with me. I wonder if anyone is coming, and if they'll bring food. Snatching up a rag from the floor, I wipe a clean circle on the mirror's surface and gaze into the dirty face, looking grimly back at me. I'd forgotten my new appearance. I tug on the locks of hair that hang around my chin and screw up my face until even I don't recognize myself. What was I thinking? People don't bring food to a street boy. A street boy would look for the kitchens. The house is dark and quiet as I walk down arched hallways and through deserted drawing rooms. The kitchens were on the canal level, so whenever I encounter a staircase, which is surprisingly often, I take it. The fresh, sweet smell of soil and plants fills the air, and my skin feels slightly damp. I wonder if Ray used, uses magic to keep everything alive or almost everything. As I pass one room, I draw up short. I don't know what compels me to stop. Perhaps it's the air coming from under the door, as cold and dry as the north wind in winter. Perhaps it's that I don't hear a sound from the room, and yet I sense that something waits inside. Perhaps secrets really do float on specks of dust, as Olivia and I used to think, waiting for someone to discover them. I could never resist a good secret. I open the door and step inside. The room is entirely white and almost entirely empty. No artwork hangs on the walls. There are no plants, no furniture, no signs of what function the room serves. Sunlight from a solitary round window hits the polished marble floor and gives off such a glare that I'm forced to squint. On the far wall stands a narrow box slightly larger than a coffin made of thousands of small black rocks. There is a bizarre quality to the dark shape as if the box is sucking up all the light and devour it, devouring it. It is less an object and more a gaping hole. A prickle of excitement shivers across my skin. I step closer, unable to look away. The rocks are obsidian. My mother has a ring set with these smooth, glassy stones. It must have cost a fortune to make an entire box out of them. I take another step. I can't help it. Mago Ray clearly designed the room so that the stark white walls and floor enhance the rock's iridescent sheen. 
they draw me forward like a current. Two more steps and I can almost touch it. The air grows brittle and cold. My eyes relax and a gasp escapes my lips, the breath materializing like a little frozen ghost in the air. I have never seen so many spells intertwined, wrapped like roots around the box, some piercing through it. Each one is black, glittering, and cruel. These aren't the tiny woven cords of a fortification spell. They're sharp and menacing, devoid of any specific shape, but insinuating plenty. A knife's shadow, black thorns, jagged teeth. I take another step. And there, in the black metal handle that blends into the face of the block. Oh, I'm sorry. I take another step. And there is a black metal handle that blends into the face of the box. I won't open it. I'm not so foolish. I only want to touch it, to run my palm along the slick surface. I reach my hand out to brush the stones, but my fingers find the handle instead and tighten around it. The box hums with magic, the spell cords loosening and uncurling like an invitation. Perhaps I am supposed to open it. Why else would I have been led in here? I pull gently and... Stop. The voice comes from far away, and I ignore it. I have work to do. Then a dark shape rushes up behind me, and thin, strong fingers clasp my hand and pull me away from the box. I'm being yelled at, but the sound is garbled as if my head is submerged underwater. I blink, and slowly everything clears so that I can fully appreciate the enraged face of Mago Ray. Inches from my own, he's making his way through a colorful list of curse words, most of which I've never heard before. I stare in fascination at the long, slightly crooked line of his nose as he towers over me. Despicable filth, what were you doing? He finishes with a shout. I glance away, staring uncertainly at the box. I don't want to patronize, but surely my actions were clear. He slaps me so hard that my head snaps back to face him. Tears spring into my eyes. Answer me, he shouts. I step back. I'm sorry, I was looking for the kitchen. Does this look like a kitchen, you dim-witted canal rat? The blacks of his eyes are expanding at an alarming rate. I thought I heard something inside. So you just opened the door. Now his voice sounds different, deeper, less human. You're in a magician's house, idiot. Snooping will get you killed. I changed tactics, hoping to flatter him. Did you make this? I ask. It's incredible. 
Mago Ray's face turns a vivid scarlet. How dare you pry into my secrets, he snarls. I cannot take his insults anymore. I may be in disguise, and he may be a monster in human clothes, but I was once the daughter of a patrician, and no one speaks to me like that. I stand up straight and plant my hands on my hips. If it's so secret, then you should put a spell on the door, or, at the very least, bar it. The magician sucks in his breath with a hiss. I don't need to bar my doors because I don't have visitors. I'm not a visitor, I cry. I work for you now. Or did you forget? And any decent person would have realized I needed breakfast and sent home... Oh, sorry. And any decent person would have realized I needed breakfast and sent someone to help me. I stopped short, immediately regretting my outburst. He slaps me again. This time I manage not to gasp. The pain fuels the anger building inside of me. Are you blind or just stupid, boy? There is no one else. I work alone. I live alone. Except for Aloysius and now you, the mongrel he's dragged in off the streets. Fine. I don't need help. But you can't fault me for getting lost in this massive overgrown house. Mago Ray slips a hand into his pocket, and I hear the dry rustle of paper against his fingers. Do not insult my house, he growls, or it might eat you. There is a scuffling sound at the door, and Aloysius practically falls into the room. His face is flushed. What happened? He said between breaths. Then he looks around as if he's only just realized where he is and his face turns pale. His eyes pass over me like he's checking for something. Did you? Then he stops and turns to Mago Ray. Did he? No, the magician spits out. I've arrived before the stupidity, before his stupidity could do any damage. Aloysius sighs. Oh, good. Very good. His next breath hitches in his throat, and he starts to cough, a deep, rasping sound that shakes his slender frame. Mago Ray rounds on him. Were you running? he asks. I am amazed at how quickly his face transforms from rage to concern. Only a little, I'm fine, Aloysius says. The words come out strained, like he's trying to hold back another cough. The yelling concerned me. He holds Ray's gaze for one long, scrutinizing look, then he frowns. Did you slap Leo? Of course not, Ray snaps. I stare at him. The red mark glowing on my cheek and my watering eyes tells a different tale. If you aren't going to throw the boy back into the canal, at least keep him out of my sight and out of this room. His words have lost their anger. With one last glare my direction, the magician stalks away. 
his robes flapping like disgruntled crows behind him. Aloysius presses a hand to his forehead and shuts his eyes. He really should put a spell on this door. The magic, the magic's pull is strong. Another cough fights its way out of his lips, and he takes a moment to collect himself before continuing. I should have given you some rules when you arrived. That was my mistake. Here's the first one, and probably the most important. Mago Ray is very protective of this house. So, if a door is shut, that room is off limits. Rule number two, don't ever enter his study without permission, even if the door is open. Is that clear? Yes, I say and then add, Signor, because he is watching me so intently. What have I gotten myself into by coming here? What kind of a magician makes something so dangerous that it can't even be touched? What, what is that thing? I ask, motioning toward the box. It's called an oscuro. Mago Ray invented it. His tone invites no further questions, and I realize that Aloysius has not once looked at the box since he arrived. He puts a hand on my shoulder and guides me to the door. And you will find nothing about it in any of the books in the library that we're going, where we're going. So don't bother looking. Is the library where Ray works? The room with the ogre? Aloysius's smile is reassuring. No, that was his study. The books in there hold all the spells he knows. You have a lot to learn before I bring you back to Mago Ray. I doubt he'll make you the assistant he'll make the assistance test easy for you, especially after this. Come on. The library is in the West Wing. So the books of spells and possible counter spells are in his study. I rub at the crescent moon mark with my thumb. I'll have to find a way to get back in there, assuming I pass this test. Aloysius leads me past a room with a glass ceiling, marble floors, and a fountain in the center overflowing with plants. We take a sharp right and walk down a hallway walled with vine-draped windows. St. Stephen's Squares unfolds one story below us. It's an excellent vantage point for the for spying on the activities in the square without being seen. Mago Ray probably stands up here like a brooding specter watching the peasants below. The library is equally impressive with a patterned tile floor and a barrel vault ceiling like the one in our ballroom. Paintings of saints and angels hover over the columns of books that line the walls. All these books, undoubtedly quite different than the mercantile, trade, and law books in my father's library. A long mahogany table runs down the center of the room, and high-backed chairs are tucked neatly in on both sides. 
These books don't hold the words of the spells, Aloysius says. He leans against the table and glances around. But they'll tell you everything you need to know to help Mago Ray. They're all about magic? Even if I started reading today and didn't stop, I would never finish before I lost sight. I lost the sight. Oh no. History, math, music, anything that interests him, they're all here. As he speaks, I spot a row of Greek tragedies on the nearest wall. Works by Aeschylus and Sophocles. He even owns Antigone. I trace my finger along the spine of the closest one. Euripides, I murmur. So you can read? Yes, my father. I clench my teeth. I almost gave myself away. My father taught me, as part of my training to become an herbalist. Interesting, Aloysius says. I wish he'd stop watching me with those furiously inscrutable eyes. He shrugs and starts pulling books off his shelf. I can still hear a slight catch in his lungs when he takes a breath. You should start with these. He sets the pile on the table. They're rudimentary, but all the knowledge builds from these fundamental rules. I pull out a chair, but Aloysius puts a hand on my shoulder. I suppose I don't have to ask you to stay in the library. He glances sideways at me with a mild expression, and I nod quickly, trying not to look guilty. Good. I'll be back in two hours. Chapter 8 Studying magic is so fascinating that I almost forget my hunger completely. The first book is for magicians in training and answers many of my questions. The guild is small and exclusive. They promote magicians from within their own families, or occasionally without, if a nobleman is willing to pay a steep enough price. This must be why assistants never become magicians. They're working-class boys, not heirs. Magicians do not share their books of spells, even amongst each other. I pour over the rules, hunting for clues. The writing of spells is a guild member's duty. Did a magician write the spell that bound me to the Cellini? Or was it their magic? As far as I know, they can only wield water not etch markings in the skin. But there is much about this world I do not know. Spells. <clears throat> Excuse me. Spells must be spoken aloud, not thought or whispered. Once a spell is spoken with paper in hand, there is no reversing it. I pause, rolling these words over in my mind. No reversing it. And yet my mother has hired magicians to make lanterns float or statues speak and then changed her mind a day later and had them removed. Perhaps this simply means that 
the initial spell cannot be stopped, it must run its course before another spell can be cast to remove it. Gentlemen are advised to wear gloves due to the incendiary nature of spell paper. Aloysius was thoughtful enough to leave a stack of papers in a quill for me, and I use them to write down the rules I want to memorize. That one seems important, seeing as I plan to cast my own spell sometime soon. The creation of, or tampering with, written spells is strictly prohibited. Only those spells approved by the guild may be used. I skipped that one. Spells marked with an X have immediate and temporary effects. Spells marked with an O have enduring powers. All spells lose their potency over time. Any spell can be broken. Any spell, I whisper, and copy the words out in bold strokes. There are instructions on the proper method for reciting spells and the exact angle to hold the paper, which I ignore, but there are also descriptions of the colors and shapes of each spell, as well as how old it is, which I copy down dutifully. I have to prove my worth to Ray so that he lets me stay. I have to impress him. One book is entirely devoted to the limits of spells. They cannot make something out of nothing. They can only alter things that are already part of this world. I pause, quill in hand, at one particular line. Black spells are forbidden. They represent an unnatural altering of the created order and should be reported immediately. I think of the serpentine coils around the Oscuro. Was that what Aloysius called it? Surely if Ray isn't immune to the guild surely even Ray isn't immune to the guild's rules. Is that why he was so angry that I discovered it? I tuck this mystery away to ponder later. Another thought crosses my mind, and I turn my wrist over to examine the crescent mark. I relax my eyes, and as the image starts to waver, I catch the almost imperceptible lines of the spell running through it. They're not black, but they're such a dark gray that it's no wonder that I never noticed them before. I rub at them with my thumb, but they don't move. They're etched into my skin. I've just finished another book when Aloysius returns. To my great relief, he's carrying a basket of food, cured sausages, a fresh loaf of bread, a cluster of fat grapes, a thick wedge of cheese, and, oh, merciful heavens, a tin of honey. Aloysius sets the basket down on the table. Care to join me? Please. I push the papers, quill, and ink away in haste. He divides everything in two, giving me the larger portions and we eat in silence. I savor every bite. 
I don't think I've ever appreciated just how delicious grapes are. You don't have a cook, I asked. There's a woman who comes once a day to prepare food. Mago Ray keeps such unusual hours that we exasperated all the live-in cooks. I bring him food from time to time. Otherwise, I think he'd forget to eat. I don't understand why someone as kind as Aloysius would willingly serve this cantankerous magician. How long have you worked for Mago Ray? Since I was twelve. So, when you said he hasn't had an assistant since you were a boy, Aloysius nods. I was his assistant. His last one? Yes. And you've lived with him ever since? Yes. There is a carefully guarded edge to his voice. I roll a bread crumb between my fingers. What Aloysius says doesn't make sense. He can't be much younger than Mago Ray, so how could he have been his assistant? Magicians are not sworn into the guild until they're well into their third decade of life, so how could Ray have been practicing decades ago? What about you, Leo? Aloysius interrupts my thoughts. Where did you live after your father died? I smear honey across my bread. Nowhere worth mentioning. Our eyes meet, and I think he sees the same wary expression on my face. We are like two chess players, sidestepping each other's moves, guarding our secrets. Aloysius doesn't press my answer, though. He accepts my silence in exchange for his own. I come up with a safer question. What are all the lines on the map for? I point to the far wall where a map of Venice hangs. It's, a, it's as tall as I am and etched in careful detail. Dark charcoal lines divide the city and her surrounding islands into 15 sections. Each section is marked with three letters, MSR, MMV, and so on. Those are the parts of Venice that each magician oversees. Their purview, I suppose. If a spell breaks or a patrician gets in a tangle with a Cellini, it's the responsibility of the magician who watches over that area to put things right. The letters are the magician's initials? Exactly. MSR is Mago Sebastian Ray. Take special note of his territory. If you see a broken spell while you're out, let him know. That's what Ray does all day? Sometimes he goes out to fix broken charms or create new ones. Other times he spends the entire day studying a book of spells or writing them out. He attends guild meetings, mediates disputes. Between Selene and the nobles, I interrupt. Yes, the patricians can be selfish, 
short-sighted. The Cellini make enticing offers and often ask for things that are distant or that seem unnecessary. Like a daughter, she thought. Magicians make sure that these bargains don't compromise the safety of our city, Aloysius finishes. That must be why the magicians, that must be why the magician was at my gala, to make sure any arrangement made was for the good of Venice. The bread sits heavily in my stomach. Aloysius sweeps the table crumbs into his palm and tips them into the basket. Before we get back to your studies, Ray has a chore for you. A chore? Yes, you told him you'd work for your food. Oh, of course. Honestly, the conversation is hazy. I was so flustered and desperate. But clearly, Ray remembered. There's a room for you to clean. I look longingly at the books. Oh, I talked him down from three rooms, Aloysius adds. He stands and packs away the remaining food. I watch it disappear with a touch of regret. I'd planned to sneak a little into the waste folds of my trouser. Who knows when they'll remember to feed me next. Off we go, he says. The room Aloysius leads me to has no plants, but that is the least of its faults. Ray picked this room, didn't he? I stare grimly around. Aloysius's nose crinkles into a grimace. His mind was made up. I did try. The room is a long rectangle with a wall of broken mirrors stretching the length of it. Glass fragments cover most of the furniture. In the middle of the ceiling, wood planks protrude from a gaping hole like exposed ribs. Plaster covers the floor in a mixture of boulder-like chunks and fine white powder. What exactly does he want me to do? His words were, scrub until it shines. Scrub it until it shines. But if you sweep all this up and wash the floors, that should do for today. I still want to fit in an evening lesson. Aloysius disappears to fetch a broom and rags, and I roll up my sleeves. I'm sure sweeping isn't that hard. Once you get the hang of it, when Aloysius returns, I've already moved some of the large pieces of plaster to the window at the far end of the room. He sets the broom, rags, and bucket down. What are you doing with those? I'm going to throw them into the canal, I pant. I'm out of breath from the effort, and so is Aloysius, although the exertion sits differently on his face. He's pale leaning against a wall with one arm as if he's trying to hide how tired he is. Just don't hit a gondola, he says. After Aloysius leaves me to my Herculean task, 
I helped the chunks of plaster up and drop them into the canal. Then I sweep the floor, or try to. Perhaps Ray thought he was being clever by binding the broom's straws to the stick with a spell, but it only succeeds in making the chore far harder than it should be. The spell threads, the spell threads wobble around, causing the straw to shift and bounce and sometimes fling my dust piles into the air. When I finally succeed in sweeping a pile into the dustbin, I dump it into the bucket and throw its contents out the window. I'm already exhausted by the time I stumble down the stairs to the canal to fill the bucket with water. I have no idea if this is how our servants clean the floors. Really, I have little idea about any of this, only a growing appreciation for their efforts. I get lost on my way back. I stagger through several hallways and landings with a full bucket splashing against my legs, tripping on ivy and moss and strangely placed pots. At one point, I turn a corner and find that I've somehow made my way back to Ray's study. The door is slightly open, and above it is the stone ogre, and above it the stone ogre glares down at me. I set down my bucket. I'm not going inside. I whisper at the disapproving ogre. I just need to catch my breath. I rub my throbbing palms on my pants. The sweat cools on my brow as if a breeze off the canal has swept down the hallway. But where could it have come from? The air in this corridor is distinctly colder, too. I sniff the air, and I am met by the unmistakable smell of death, the smell that haunts my nightmares. The Selene Lord has found me. Okay, kiddos, that's the end of chapter 8. And we are on page 98. Which, if you do that math, we're about a quarter of the way through the book. About a hundred out of four hundred total pages. So, very early on in the story. It's getting a little bit intriguing though, huh? Ray cruising around Mago Ray's magical, mystical house that's way bigger on the inside than it should be from the outside. All the magic, the rules of magic, you guys, I'm just going to say, um, this is interesting to me. I don't know if you caught that when uh, Leo was, or Le Leonora, Leona, sorry, Leona was doing her studies about the rules of magic. That's very important in any story. Right now we're mapping out the rules that she's going to have to understand and master and then use to break her spell, her spell of captivity and the spell that binds her to the Selene with that crescent mark on her arm. So in 
Christine Cohen's world, she is fleshing out these rules that her heroiness will use for freedom. And kiddos, I want you to think of that. I want you to think about the rules we have in our world here. Because we have rules in our world, and some, most of the time we don't even think about them. But what rules do we have? Let's, let's just talk about regular rules around the house. Do this, do that, by this time, in this way, and things will go very well for you. In fact, you'll make money. We will give you money if these rules are followed. And sometimes if you exceed the rules or do so or do really well with them, you might even get a bonus. How about rules at school? How about Lily Joy? You're going to have, you've already proved that you can master a certain amount of rules by taking your driver's permit test. Congratulations again, by the way. Uh, so, you guys are going to find, no matter where you go, whatever relationship, institution, job that you uh, put yourself into, there's rules. There's a framework of understanding and common beliefs, traditions, rules, guidelines, whatever you want to call them. But we are getting the rules of magic here that uh, Leona is going to have to follow. And that's pretty cool. Um, they're not real rules in our world. They're just rules in Christine Cohen's uh, artificial Venice land. But we need to pay attention to them if we're going to understand how Leona is going to uh, overcome her her big problem. So anyways, that's my little commentary on that part. I, I am developing a respect for Christine Cohen here and how she's fleshing out her world and the key to how uh, Leona's going to beat the Cellinis. I'm sure it's going to happen, right? I mean, this is a story. It's going to happen one way or another. It's just going to be fun and entertaining to see how it happens. Okay, enough daddy talk. I just want to bless you kiddos. Um, with all that, you guys are going to see that God's going to show you because he loves you and he's created you for... Uh, for a purpose, many purposes, and many jobs and works and tasks he has created you to do, even before time began, he had a blueprint for your life. And you guys are going to step into all these different jobs, institutions, situations, relationships with rules. Some of them you're going to enjoy and do very, very well at. You might even say that you have a gift or a natural inclination. Some of them you're going to be like, eh, I don't like this. I, I, fly, I flop around here like a fish. I, I don't want to be part of the cricket team. Or uh, flying kites is boring. I don't like uh, flying kites. Or I really do like all the rules and uh, 
things that go into being a race car driver. I don't know. I don't know. That's, I'll, I'll help you uh, figure out what you enjoy and what you excel at. And um, But anyways, I just want to bless you for that purpose. I just want to say that uh, God will show you what he made you to do. And he'll give you things that you're really good at. And he will also graciously show you where uh, maybe you're not so great at or it's going to take more work to become good at. Everything takes a lot of work, I should say that. But anyways, uh, Leona is learning that she's going to learn the rules of being a magician. You guys will learn different sets of rules for different things. And it's going to be fun and it's part of the adventure God has for you. For your sanctification and your growth and maturity. And um, and for God's glory, he will develop you in all these ways. All right, got to go take a shower and go to work. I love you kiddos very much. And uh, it's fun reading to you. Thanks for listening to me. And uh, give mommy a big hug. And I'll catch you later. Love you all. Night, night.